Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Today's show is for investors that want to gain a better comprehension of financial repression, currencies, central banks, and their respective monetary system, gold, and most important, what actions you, the investor, can take. Joining me today to discuss these very important topics is the president and CIO of Merck Investments, which is dedicated to managing dollar and currency risk, Mr. Axel Merck. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Great to be with you. Axel, for uh, investors that are uh, new to Merck Investments, please share the vital services you provide investors. Well, the, the, what we do vitally is we, we try to make sense of what's happening in the world, and then uh, we try to help investors to, to act accordingly. And, and, and we do that through a couple of investment products and uh, through a free newsletter that we provide. We're also very active on Twitter. Investment products are two currency mutual funds. We have a gold exchange-traded fund as well. And on the, on the newsletter side, we, we really try to share our thoughts because a lot of things when you have an investment product, it's kind of limited what you can do. But we, when, we, when we study the world, we come up with many ideas of what people might be able to do. And, and, and so in, in the newsletter, we can be going more into depth. And then we use social media, in particular Twitter, to really comment on, on what's happening right here and then. That's really the fastest, most efficient way for, for investors to, to stay attuned into our thinking. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, actually, I want to jump right into today, uh, to today's interview on a phenomenal article you just released aptly entitled Precisely Wrong on Dollar Gold, where the narrative focused on expectations set forth by central bankers to coerce market expectations. Share with investors why your article is so critical to their investment decisions. Yes, well, I'm not going to bore you with the details of of perceptions versus reality. Um, in, in many ways, just to give you a little hint of that, the the um, what people think, uh, be that on, on on company valuation when it comes to earnings, is much more important than the actual earnings. So similarly, the interest rates we may have um, are less important than the perception of the rates. And and what this article is about is is how central banks have really taken that to a new level. Uh, we call it transparency forward guidance, but what it really is, it's a coercion of the market into, into manipulating the yield curve, into manipulating rates, um, which is much cheaper than, than kind of uh, buying and selling securities or raising lower rates when you can just, with a word of mouth, move markets. And, and of course, the, the central banks have the bazooka, the problem comes when this bazooka becomes a loose cannon, meaning that when suddenly um, they, they push markets to extremes, and at some point, reality catches up with them. And then either markets snap back or central banks are losing credibility, and we see different things like that happening on an increasing basis. And so one has to be very wary on, on how that's going to unfold. What we try to do in our work is we try to put ourselves into the shoes of the central bankers, as painful as it is, to think about where they might be moving next. And then with a healthy dose of cynicism and skepticism, uh, we, we try to make sense of it all. Fair enough. You know, not to, di to digress really here, but sticking with the theme of expectations, as a student of Austrian economics, I view inflation as the expansion of our currency. But whenever I do hear the term real rate of inflation from government and quasi-government entities, they provide citizens with the core CPI numbers, not the CPI. Thus, they omit utilities, food, and taxes, which we all pay, which I find quite misleading. So it really ties into your, your article here. Axel, give us your thoughts on the latest FOMC meeting. Um, well, if, if you think about what's, what's happening at the Fed, um, late last year, the Fed raised rates. Well, what is the point of raising rates? The point of raising rates is to tighten financial conditions. 
What happened after the, the rates went up? Financial conditions tightened, and Janet Yellen came out and says, oh my God, um, financial conditions have tightened. Now, the reason why she said things, the market overreacted, quote unquote, is, is because for this quarter point rate hike, the market did much more than, than she had anticipated. And so when these ivory tower academics run their models, everything is linear, whereas I often compare to what's happened in, in the markets as a kind of a pressure cooker where Janet Yellen last summer has tried to take the lid off, those things don't happen quite so smoothly. And, and now as she's tried to put that lid back onto the pressure cooker, uh, the, the markets have become complacent again. And and now the, the Fed is thinking, well, maybe we don't want them to be quite so complacent because we want to keep our options open. And so the, the, the real problem is that um, this, this quote-unquote data dependency we have on the Fed is right, like reading the tea leaves, and the market is doing the job for the Fed and is telling the Fed what to do. It's, it's a case of the, the tail wagging the dog, and much of that is because Janet Yellen is a labor economist. When you're a labor economist, you'll, by definition, look at past data. Um, Bernanke, and I have my share of criticism for Bernanke as well, but at least he looked at forward-looking indicators. He looked at things like inflation expectations, and, and there you, you, can, you have a yardstick, whereas Janet Yellen looks at past data, and so the market is telling her what to think of those data, and that's not very good when the person with the bazooka and that really turned into a loose cannon is, is being chased around by the markets. Very well said. Do you believe there will be rate hikes, or are we heading to ZERP and NERP, which is zero and negative interest rate programs? I know that everybody is kind of uh, so focused on that. What I like to focus on instead is whether we're going to have real rates go up. And, and I, I don't care so much about the definitions of whether the CPI or the core CPI is, is accurate. Um, everybody can make up their own mind on that. But I think if there's one takeaway from the Fed is that they're going to be late in raising rates. And I, I, if you read the, the FOMC's uh, statements, until late last year, they said that even as employment and inflation goes back to what's historically considered normal, rates are going to be less than normal. To me, that is a promise to be, quote unquote, behind the curve, which means real interest rates are not going to move up even as normal rates go up. And ultimately, that is what's relevant for investors. The problem for the markets is that they think that, or they have been led to believe for years now, that the market is so, going to be so incredibly tough. Well, the market, the, 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 the Fed is going to be behind the curve. Uh, Bernanke used to phrase it, I think, very well. He said, when you're faced with a credit bust, you don't want to be early in raising rates. And now I'm interpreting some things in, into it. He says, well, you want to be late in raising rates. And uh, Janet Yellen doesn't have that academic framework, so she can't formulate it that way. Um, but ultimately, it's the same thing, that, yes, rates might be going up, um, and it's going to cause quite some havoc in the markets. And by the way, to, to just expand on that, the reason it's going to cause havoc in the markets is because we, we, we raised this recovery on asset price inflation. And if indeed we, we raise rates, I believe, and I can expand on that, we, we, I think asset prices are going to plunge again. It's going to be a double headwind to, uh, to economic growth as well. And that's one of the reasons why the hands are tied at the Fed, but it won't stop them from trying. Well, again, thank you for sharing that. You've made some very, very valid points here. Uh, Two-part question here. Does the latest FOMC affect Puerto Rico, and should Puerto Rico's debt be of concern to investors? Well, uh, Puerto Rico 
until a few days ago had a big mess on their hand. Now they still have a mess on their hand. The, the change that has happened in recent days is that, that Congress has now defined a process on, on how they can deal with this debt. Um, if you think about it, we have to, to kind of make like a bigger picture argument. Um, throughout the globe, we have made too many promises. Um, entitlements or other ways that we have, uh, governments have made too many promises. And now different places in the world will deal with these sort of things differently. And obviously, depending on how far you're down the road and how forgiving the markets are, the reactions are going to be different. The challenge that Puerto Rico had is that they want to default, but they didn't have a bankruptcy process. And so now Congress has stepped in and, and kind of imposed the process on them. Now, What's relevant here is that obviously we, we have other municipalities and states that have challenges, and, and you've got to watch very carefully about um, what sort of bonds are, are subject to being renegotiated. And so if you open the can of worms too much, people are going to start wondering, well, maybe um, could California potentially say that, oh, we're not going to pay those bonds back in full. And at this stage, there hasn't been any spillover. If you just look at, at, at the markets, we monitor very carefully on, on, on how things like credit default swaps are evolving. Um, but it is something to be monitored very carefully. And this, this new authority that Congress has put in place, what sort of things will be renegotiated? And uh, you've got to be very careful as you wait that minefield, because obviously they will set a precedent to others that, that also have, have related challenges. Thank you so much. You know, last question regarding the U.S. If the U.S. does remove the 50 and $100 Federal Reserve note, will this have an effect on the confidence in the currency? Well, the Europeans just got rid of the, the 500 euro note, and they say it's only to, to fight terrorism and this and that. I mean, obviously what happens when, when, you, when you get rid of cash, uh, you give the government more power to, to impose negative rates. And uh, that might not be explicit. You asked earlier about the, the likelihood of negative rates coming. The reason why I think negative rates are unlikely to come in the U.S. anytime soon is because of the, the credit markets in the U.S. functioning very differently from the rest of the world. We're very active, vibrant credit markets, um, commercial paper markets and the like. Um, those markets will be destroyed with negative rates. In Japan, those markets have been destroyed. Liquidity has been uh, completely destroyed in many markets, uh, JGB markets most notably in Japan. The U.S., I don't think, is, is, ha is willing to, to risk that. And on top of that, the negative rates, in my view, don't work. We can expand on that. But, um, and, and so I think in the U.S., they will engage in more QE if they have to lower rates. Um, but negative rates themselves, I think they'll try to stay away from as, as much as possible. Um, but yes, if, if, you, if you kind of ban cash, so to speak, um, an increasing number of people might be wondering as to, as to what, what the purpose is at the same time. If you, if you walk around with a smartphone these days, I mean, you, you don't use much cash anymore. I don't use cash most of the time, and I do it voluntarily. Um, and so many people are, are thinking that, oh, yeah, we don't need that thing, um, not realizing that in reality, well, you're losing yet another way of, of having a store of value if you can call cash a store of value with, with the negative real interest rates that we have. Well, thank you again for sharing that. That was very comprehensive. You know, moving further south, let's go to Brazil, where it appears there's a pending impeachment of their president. Is this a good time to short the real? Well, two things. Let's first talk about Brazil and then the impeachment process. Um, Brazil has a long-term problem, just like the U.S., just like Europe, 
Dr. Pan, is called entitlement. In the 1980s, the Brazilians changed the constitution to link entitlements, and they have a great deal of them, to inflation. And what happens when you do that is that at some point you have a crowding out of other services. We have the same problem in the U.S. Of course, we had a very different stage. And so now on top of that, you had a government that had policies in place that were rather detrimental. And for now, for, for six months minimum, um, we have the, the, the former president shoved aside. We have a new, new person in there who seems to be much more pro-market, much more reform-oriented. And so it is perfectly possible now to, to have a confidence boost. Um, you get rid of some of the government controls and so forth. And so you can have a cyclical upswing. What's not going to happen, though, you're not going to fix those structural issues that weren't put in place in the 1980s unless you have a very strong majority in parliament, which there isn't. And so you cannot fix those issues. And so now you're asking me whether to invest in the currency. During the boom years already, I said, if you want to invest in a commodity currency, go for the Australian dollar. Um, don't go for the Brazilian real because it's much more of a pure play. And so similarly, yes, you can have a bet on, 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 on a cyclical recovery, but you're buying a can of worms. And so we stay away from it, both on the long and the short side, because the dynamics are just too complex. I mean, currency people are simple-minded people. You, we look at interest rates, and uh, that's about it. I mean, I'm, I'm greatly simplifying here. But um, the Brazilian real has a lot of cross-currents to it, and I leave it up to smarter minds to decide on whether they want to buy it or not. Now, on, on a broader point, though, emerging markets in general, the currencies are really mostly gauges of liquidity. Uh, when times are good, when the mood is good in the markets, we, we talk about the risk being on, um, then those sort of currencies tend to do very well. And when there's a flight out of risky assets, out of risk assets, then those currencies tend to do poorly. And so Brazil is also more in that camp, whereas the Australian dollar, to put that into, co into context, is a free-floating major currency that is less prone to those sort of dynamics. So to me, um, the Brazilian real is, is a mess to trade, um, but, but clearly it, it was pushed to extremes and it's bounced back. Um, I leave it up to others to, to make a decision on that. Well, Axel, thank you for those insights. You know, let's travel across the Atlantic to some familiar territory for us both, Europe. Can you provide investors what you find most concerning regarding the ECB, specifically on their resolution for deflation and utilities? Well, the the biggest problem that, that the ECB has is they got an intellectual genius as their chief. And, uh, and I say that because I think Mr. Draghi is too smart for his own good. Um, he thinks that with his, his brains, he can solve the problems in the Eurozone. A little bit of humility and modesty would go a long way with central bankers if they realize that they cannot solve all the problems in the world. And so, I mean, we all know what's happened in the Eurozone. Um, we, we follow them very, very closely. And, and, and so a while ago, they decided that, well, all this adjustment process, the German style austerity, um, that increases productivity, but it's an extremely painful process and politically very destabilizing. And so one of the ways, of course, you can get more competitive is you accept half the salary. Well, yeah, then you're not going to vote for the same party again, and that's not so good for, 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 for political stability. So his idea was, well, why don't I debase the euro? boosting exports and that's going to give a cyclical recovery and by the way when i print so much money everybody's going to do the right thing and do all the structural reforms um I, i'm being cynical here by the way but that's what he, he's, he's saying um, but what he noticed is that well if you want to export you've got to have something to export 
who is best at exporting in Europe? It's the Germans. So the German economy is booming. And in Southern Europe, well, yes, tourism is picking up. That's an export item. But it's not really doing the job it's supposed to be doing. And so about two months ago, um, Draghi shifted gears. He said he's not going to lower interest rates any further. He's later corrected that, and he might still do that. Um, but instead, he announced a whole bunch of new measures. And our analysis of these measures suggests that the goal of those is to cut the funding costs of banks in half. And to understand why, you've got to understand that Europe is different from the U.S. I already mentioned that in the U.S., I don't think we go to negative rates. It's because the credit markets are so important. In Europe, the banking system is important. You go to a bank when you want to have a loan. And so what that means is that if the banks are not willing to lend because their balance sheets are restricted, um, then the economic growth can't come. And, and so that's what he's focusing on. And as a result, of course, the euro has come back up. And by the way, too, we haven't talked about too much about the dollar-euro relationship. Um, I happen to think that in the U.S., with all the challenges Janet Yellen has in raising rates, we are near the top of the interest rate cycle, where in Europe we're near the bottom, which is very different where we have been when the perception has been everything is great in the U.S., everything is horrible in, in Europe. I, I'm not suggesting things aren't bad in Europe, but as far as the interest rate cycle is concerned, I think it's high time for the, for the dollar to weaken versus the euro. That doesn't mean they fixed the issues we have in the Eurozone. But then again, what else is new? I don't think we've fixed our issues in the U.S., in Japan, Brazil, or anywhere else. You know, thank you for touching on the, the correlation or relation with the, uh, the euro and the dollar. Are the pigs nations, which are the peripherals in, in essence, are they in jeopardy of com compromising the euro? And how concerned are you about their debt obligations? Well, when you buy the euro, the question is, what do you buy? Um, do you put your money into a bank that's domiciled in the UK. We have a Brexit potentially bombing up, by the way. Do you buy a German T-bill? Do you buy a Greek T-bill? Do you buy, uh, what is it that you buy? And, and, and so when you buy a German T-bill, well, you're getting a negative return these days on that. Um, but that's, then you don't really care what's going to happen to the euro. And by the way, if the euro were to break apart, uh, money would be sucked out of the weaker countries into the small, uh, stronger countries. And by the way, just if you think the U.S. is any different, well, in the U.S., do you buy a, a Portuguese obligation, a Puerto Rico obligation, or do you buy uh, a money market instrument? And a couple of years ago, money market funds had over half of their holdings in commercial paper and other short-term debt issued in U.S. dollars by European financial institutions. That has changed since. But even in the U.S., you've got to be careful what happens to your dollar. And so similarly, in, 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 do, do the, the, the Southern Europe jeopardize the euro? Well, well yes. Um, but can you, the, what's the relevance really for an investor? Um, are the Greek going to in, turn into Germans? No, they're not. Um, is, are interest rates too low for Germany? I think they are. Um, are. Are the right policies being implemented in, in the rest of Europe? Well, in politics, never anything is perfect. Um, the Spaniards have implemented some reforms, but not enough. The Italians haven't tackled their banking issues sufficiently. And, and, and Greece is always going to be a mess. Um, now, does that mean economic growth in Northern Europe has to be bad? Not necessarily. What everybody in the world needs is something really very simple. In my view, the best short-term policy is a good long-term policy. And Unfortunately, I don't see that anywhere in the world. Yeah, I would agree with you on that as well. Central bankers tend to have a juxtaposed position uh, to their ideology versus what you were uh, referring to a long-term view as the actual solution here. Um, finally, let's discuss China and Japan. 
What do investors need to focus on? <laughs> well, I, I don't know what they need to focus on. I do know what the markets have focused on. Well, actually, I can also tell you what they need to focus on. But um, earlier this year, I had been asked the question, is, is China a symptom or a cause of the turmoil in the markets? And uh, if you look at the markets, the market saying it's the cause, I happen to believe it's more of a symptom. Now, it, it, that's kind of a chicken and egg question. The reason I bring that up, though, is that we always like to blame somebody else for the problems we have at home. Politicians like to do it. Investors like to do it. Our management loves to do it. They like to blame the currency when they don't need the, the earnings. Um, if we just fixed our problems domestically, we wouldn't be so dependent on everybody else. Um, the U.S. and China, by the way, are, are really driving global growth, and that's, uh, that's a bit of a concern because maybe we're slowing down in the U.S., and maybe the Chinese are, are, are running out of some of the debt-driven things that they, that they create here. Now, um, in China, you have a policy fight. You have the reformists, and then you have kind of the more traditionalists. And you always, they, they try to inf institute reforms. An amazing number of reforms were instituted in the months leading up to the decision of the IMF to, to add uh, the renminbi to, to the basket of reserve currencies. But at the same time, when, when any, any turmoil flares up anywhere, they, they go back on any of the promises, and, and, uh, and the, the heavy arm of the government goes back in. What China really needs is they need to find ways to allocate credit more efficiently. And allocating credit more efficiently doesn't mean low interest rates, but meaning that you tailor interest rates according to the risk profile of borrowers, also a concept that has gotten lost in, in most of the world. In China, if you are a, a state-owned enterprise, you have abundant access to credit, but if you're a small or medium-sized enterprise, you have to go to a loan shark. Now, the Chinese are now going after the shadow banking system, and, and maybe that's okay, but you've got to do the other side of that. You've got to teach the banking system how to allocate credit efficiently, because then the only other thing you need to do is to give the Chinese a vision of, of how to boost, uh, how to invest in their own country, and then you can re-engineer the, the economy. So in the long run, I think China is going to be okay, but in, in, in the short to medium term, they have a whole bunch of issues. Um, and before I talk too much about China, let's talk about Japan here for a second. Japan is in a big mess. They have, a, I would call, a populist prime minister who um, has said he has three arrows. While he's been focusing mostly on monetary policy, it hasn't worked. The Bank of Japan has lost credibility, and the market is doing what it wants to do, and the Bank of Japan can't do anything. And then the, the, the Japanese saw, and it's one of the reasons I, I talked, uh, called Draghi smart, is because the Japanese saw, oh, something is working in, in Europe where they provide negative rates to, where the, the ECB is, is, is providing credit at negative rates to the, to, to the banking system. And so the rumor came up in Japan, the markets rallied, and a few days later, the Bank of Japan had a meeting. They didn't do anything. Well, the reason they didn't do anything is because it's not so easy. Um, and, 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 and so the market is, is just taking Japan for a ride. Uh, if you look at all of these, these, this region, but the entire world, the one call that's coming up more frequently is you need to have an increase in fiscal spending. And uh, I'm not suggesting that we should have it, but what you want to keep your eyes open for is, is that going to happen? And unfortunately, the one way you can boost fiscal spending and with, when you have your, your local parliament disagree is through military action. And so see more, more armed conflicts, see more building up of militaries because that is how you can spend money and how you're going to have reasonably little opposition um, in, internally. 
Um, unfortunately, of course, that's not going to fix anything other than then continue to to load up on debt. But again, different countries are going to deal with these things differently, and uh, it's fascinating to see it unfold. Now, as an investor, of course, um, you you want to kind of try to not to step onto too many mines as you navigate those uh, those waters. Axel, as always, great insights. You know, switching gears here, Axel, we've discussed currencies. Let's discuss what some of us view as the ultimate currency, which is gold. How does gold factor into the discussion we've had today? Well, gold is is just a brick, right? Gold doesn't do anything. Gold doesn't change. What changes is the world around it. And in many ways, it's fascinating that the price of gold since 1971 until the end of the third quarter has had an annual return of just about 8%. And um, when it doesn't do anything, well, how is that possible? The only way that's, I think, possible is that cash maybe isn't quite as good as it it can be. Um, Gold, because it doesn't do anything, has as the biggest competitor cash. And cash is a competitor to gold when you get a real rate of return on your cash. But when real rates on your cash are negative, gold, in my view, looks quite attractive. I had a discussion once with a with a Fed president and, and, and said that I don't see how over the next decade, for an extended period, we can afford to have positive real interest rates in the US, Eurozone, or Japan. His response was, well, that wouldn't create a stable equilibrium. And I said to that, well, I never said it's going to be stable. Um, and, 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 and so in a world where we have financial repression, meaning where real interest rates are, are negative, and, and it doesn't matter really what, what inflation indicator you use, it matters any particular investor, what they think, what the rate of inflation is. And so if you think that, that you're not getting your money's worth holding cash, Gold is something to look at. Now, clearly, you can, of course, invest in other things if you don't think you're getting a decent return on cash. But remember that many assets through um, Fed action, central bank action of the world have been inflated, whereas gold has come down quite a bit. Clearly, it has gone up year to date. The other attractive thing about gold, by the way, is it's low correlation to equities and other risk assets. Um, the long term, since, again, since 1970, the correlation on a monthly basis to equities is exactly zero. Now, if you think that stocks are expensive and you want to diversify, I happen to think that investors are overexposed to stocks because they have, quote, unquote, worked for many years um, and haven't rebalanced. Well, you want to do something that has a low correlation. And it isn't easy to find something that has a low correlation. It's one of the reasons we do currencies, but people's eyes glaze over if I explain to them about a long, short currency strategy. Gold is something people can grasp. It has a low correlation. In my view, it's not expensive. And real interest rates are low, and I believe they will stay low for an extended period. Um, And and so that's how gold fits into the picture that um, I think people should consider having more more of their investments in gold. Speaking of that, you know, Axel, Merck Investments offers an investment vehicle listed on the New York uh, Stock Exchange with the ticker symbol of O-U-N-Z. Let me repeat that for you one more time. O-U-N-Z. For investors that want to have gold in their portfolio but don't want to worry about the storage and theft. Talk to us about your stock symbol OUNZ and why you created it and why now. Sure. What the, the, the OUNZ, it's called the Venek Merck Gold Trust. What it is, it's a competing product to, to the other physical gold ETFs in the markets um, with the key difference that investors can take delivery of the gold. And not only is that a, a theoretical feature, as, as some products have, it's a real feature. Uh, we, have, we store London bars in London, 
and investors can request those London bars. Having said that, most investors probably don't want to have a London bar. Not only are they they're big and expensive, um, most investors rather have a coin. And so what we have, we actually have a patented delivery process where you can say, all right, I got my gold through ounce, and now I'd like to have some American gold eagles or maple leaves or one ounce bars delivered to me, and we we facilitate that. And again, it's not a theoretical feature. Uh, we, we launched the fund in, um, in 2014. It's, it's now just uh, over, over two years old. Uh, we have about $110 million in that fund now. It's $110 million equivalent. And uh, we've had about 200 ounces being delivered, about half a dozen deliveries. So it's not a lot of people take delivery, but what they like is the optionality. They like the ability to take delivery. And basically, um, it trades like the other gold ETFs. And the spreads in the markets are extremely tight. And the reason why they have historically been extremely tight is because the market makers that, that provide that ETF mechanism um, hedge their entire gold exposure. They don't just um, hedge the exposure to, to outs. And so with that, we can provide a liquidity that's on par with other gold ETFs. And at the same time, um, they can take delivery. And so a lot of people, once they've looked at it, uh, prefer ounce over, over the other gold ETFs that are out there. You know, actually, your company offers a free newsletter. Tell us more about it. Just one, just one item, maybe, on, on that. Um, one of the nice features is that taking delivery in itself is not a taxable event. So when, when you have appreciated shares in ounce, you can say, all right, send me my gold. And the reason that's not taxable in itself is because you own an underlying stake in in the trust. So you have a prorated ownership in the trust. You're just taking delivery of what you already own. Now, uh, switching gears um, to the newsletter, I mentioned in the, in, in the introduction, we do write a newsletter. It's a free newsletter. And so unlike others that um, write something on a daily or monthly basis, we, we write when we got something to say um, and we want to get the word out. Usually it means I get ticked off by something and, and then we write an analysis <laughs> about it. But um, And because we want to have some fun, we often create cartoons um, that come with it. And many people subscribe just to get the cartoons. But there is a very serious notion underneath here is that what what I believe very firmly is that we have a world that's driven a lot by, by policy action out there. And rather than chasing the news as they happen um, on CNBC or elsewhere, investors need to create their own framework to think about the world. And so we try to give investors the tools with which to analyze the world by diving more into depth into what's happening. And, and, and we try to give it a spin that's uh, a little bit more interesting than, than just saying, hey, we think the GDP growth is going to be 0.6% higher or lower the next quarter. But we try to, to talk about things as they might be evolving and, and why, more importantly, why they might be evolving. And you can sign up for that newsletter at MerckInvestments.com. Okay. Now, in addition to your newsletter, you also offer regular webinars. That is, they're, they're action-packed and they're also a wealth of information. Where can investors enroll for your webinars? Yeah, so we have an a webinar coming up um, this coming Tuesday as we speak on uh, on May 24th. Now, if you missed that, uh, we try to have a webinar once a month. Um, the upcoming one is on our dollar outlook. We, we often seize on a particular theme at MerckInvestments.com. There is there's always a button MerckInvestments.com forward slash webinar. We'll always get you to the sign up for for the the most recent webinar. And those are those are our most popular. 
um, venues really to to um, if you want to get a, a a kind of a discussion on a specific topic, uh, we we we've discussed gold, we've we we talk about the dollar. Um, some of them are on a product specifically. If you want to dive into them more more deeply, and we always welcome income input um, into what we should cover. And so sometimes we 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 choose a topic that's uh, initiated by by somebody in the audience. Um, and uh, we haven't today talked about the election. Um, I love to play equal opportunity offender to the to the various candidates, and so we might also discuss those sort of things in, in the webinars. All right. Well, with that being said, would you share your thoughts on the upcoming elections? <laughs> well, um, the, the the only the, the, let me make a, a broader point here that that that's more useful. Um, uh, then I think the the global theme we have is that political stability is on the decline. And it's the direct result of real wages having stagnated in the U.S. Um, if you look at the U.S. where people get upset that the reason real wages have stagnated in the U.S. is that we have fostered global overproduction with the sort of policies we've had in place for the past uh, 15 years plus. And what happens is that you, you overproduce the goods, consumer prices are low, corporate America is squeezed in the middle, you accelerate the outsourcing, many trends that would have happened otherwise as well, and then you, you prevent growth from happening with excess regulations. And so uh, the U.S. labor market is very flexible, but after a while people get upset, and so that's why they veer towards the Tea Party, the Occupy Wall Street movement, a, a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump. Now in the rest of the world, similar things happen. Um, you have revolutions in the Middle East where rising food and energy prices cause, cause revolutions because people can't feed themselves anymore. You have the same thing in Japan where you elect the populist prime minister. Um, by the way, in the Ukraine, I would allege that they wouldn't be in a mess they're in if they had been able to balance their books. And so the kind of budget consciousness plays into that, that as well. Um, but all of that, if you think about political leaders, the one thing they have in common throughout the world is they never blame themselves. They blame foreigners, they blame, um, they blame a minority. And, and so you have this rise of, of populism throughout the world and in the U.S., we have reasonably robust uh, institutions. Now, we might be critical of some of them, but more robust than other parts of the world. So we can play this game probably longer, and we can probably live with a populist candidate better than some other countries can. Um, the kind of the, the bleak outlook here is that, um, and I mentioned this already earlier, I alluded to it, the Great Depression ended in World War II. And that is, again, because when you, when you are caught in this mess and you don't know a way out, uh, ramping up military spending is really the most quote-unquote efficient way to, to ramp up fiscal spending when you don't want to do the right thing and do the, the right sort of reform. Now, back to, back to your real question about the political candidates. Um, unfortunately, none of the candidates that, that I see are really addressing what needs to be addressed, which is we need to get our entitlement spending under control. We need to do that because if we don't, we're going to have the same mess that Latin American countries have. Um, it, is, it is monetary policy and the lack of entitlement reform that's going to drive the wealth gap. And it's not that we have to kind of tax the rich or, um, or, or, or somehow have some short-term measurement to fix the world. What we need to do, we need to allow market forces to play out. And, we, and the, the only market force that plays out with the rules we have in place is that entitlement spending is going to crowd out everything, um, including the military, by the way. Um, it's going to make us weaker. And, 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 and so um, that is really the challenge we have. And in the, at the other end of the spectrum, though, um, luckily, 
whoever we got, we might choose, the power of the presidency is 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 fairly limited. The place where do, they do have a lot of influence is the regulatory body. So depending on who we elect, we might get more or less regulation coming out of the EPA and so forth. Um, but none of that changes the global theme that that I do think that unfortunately political stability is on the decline just about everywhere. You know, Axel, I always enjoy hearing your veracity to politics and economics. Thank you again for sharing that. Uh, last question. What did I forget to ask today? <laughs> well, um, the, I'm actually very optimistic about the world in general. Um, life will continue. And, uh, and, and we, we always talk about how, how, kind of how, how government is, is, is making our lives more difficult. I bet you that in, in 20 years from now, a 70-year-old a working is going to be proud to be working. Today, we, we, just like any woman today working, is proud to be working. 50 years ago, um, uh, women were, were not breadwinners of the home. And now it's a sta- the society adjusts. The question is, where do you want to be in that adjustment process? Uh, one thing we didn't cover is that um, don't trust the government is going to take care of you. A government in debt has different incentives than you have when you have savings to deploy. And so keep that in mind that the Fed is not in charge to help you. They're in charge to keep the system oiled and running. And so that, that's something to keep in mind. Um, and then, there's, of course, I can expand on many other things, but I think those are plenty of thoughts for now. In closing, what is the best way for investors to contact Merck Investments? Um, through our website. That's probably the easiest. Um, if you want to get in touch with me directly, there's a big easy button, a question mark on the website to, to reach out. But um, it's really sign up to our newsletter, join our webinars, follow me on Twitter. Whenever there's an ECB meeting, um, rather than taking notes on paper, I take notes on Twitter. Um, and so you can really get a, a live feedback on my thought process uh, on what's happening there. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is, is, is my name, Axel Merck. Um, and so Twitter is really the the, if you if you follow that and, and on, on that note um, Twitter is one of the best venues to to be informed aside from things like your website maybe but to to be informed of what's happening out there if you see an interesting article look up who the author is follow that author on Twitter that's how you can compose your um, your newsfeed much better than, than switching on the TV and 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 having bubble vision kind of trying to indoctrinate you all day Axel Merck of Merck Investments, thank you for joining us today on Proven Improbable. My pleasure. The information presented on Proven Improbable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.